Hi, this is Paula Ellis, and welcome to Book Circle Online. I'm here with Jessica Teich, author of Future Tense of Joy. So stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I am so excited to be here with Jessica. This is an amazing book, and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet and you are thinking about it or if you have read it, I know you will agree with me, um, I want to start with the title because the title drew me in immediately. Oh, I'm so glad. There was a lot of dispute about that title because it's a little bit abstract Mm -hmm. and kind of poetic Mm -hmm. Um, and it comes from a wonderful poem that talks about taking the pain of the past Mm. and converting it into the future tense of joy Mm. and I really felt the book was about that journey of taking your pain and trying to transmute it into something else Wow! and also you know the book there are a lot of time shifts in the book. Yes. Um, lots of past and present yes. colliding. Yes. And so the fact that there was a reference to time in the title felt mm-hmm. right to me. That makes sense. As a matter of fact, that's one of the questions that I had for you was I wanted to get a good sense of the timeline because there was a lot of past and present. And um, so why don't we just kind of maybe start there. Sure. I had made a couple of notes because I know just starting out um, – I guess when you open the book, though, we find you, you are stocking, if you will, yes. Isabel. Yes. Which is great. It was a way you injected some amazing humor oh, into good. a very um, challenging journey, right? I mean, there's a lot of hard times and tough uh, subject matters in this journey. You deal with a lot of different uh, hard issues. But I also love the way you did that. But so we we find that in this book that at age 16 you went through a very difficult time in your life being sexually abused and then when we find you um reading the magazine and finding out about Lacey how long had that been from the time I was abused Mm -hmm. um it had been probably 30 years Wow. Yeah. And I had kind of lived, and I talk about this in the book, Behind a Scrim. I had this lovely life, but I, I didn't feel it in some way. I felt wow. like um, I could see my, my husband and my daughters, mm-hmm. and they seemed so happy, and I wanted to join the kind of yeah. coziness of life with yeah. them. Yeah. But I something was holding me back, mm-hmm. and I only later, as I began the journey of the book, realized that that's one of the effects of PTSD, Mm. that that sense of disassociation. Mm -hmm. Almost like an out-of-body experience at times. Yes, it was almost like, and I worked in the theater for a long time, Mm -hmm. it was almost like watching a stage scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was beautifully lit, Mm -hmm. and everybody seemed to be doing exactly what they should be doing, and somehow I could never enter the scene, Mm. because I was so kind of caught in this weird limbo, a kind of spiritual limbo almost. Now, when you read in the uh, magazine about Lacey, um, which she had taken her life in 1995, yes. right? Was that 1995 that no, you actually read it? It was 10 years later. Okay, it okay. Was, and and I'm, I hope other people aren't like this, but in my house there's stuff lying everywhere that you can pick <laughs> up and read in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. Yeah, I know the and, belly. Yeah, so this was a 10-year-old magazine uh, okay. that just happened to be there, and okay. I kind of was middle of the night, and okay. I couldn't sleep, and... I was sort of drawn initially to how beautiful this obituary was. Mm. The language was so lyrical, Mm. and it just kind of um, carried me in. And then once inside the obituary, I realized that the person it was about was what was really 
remarkable mm-hmm. because she was such a charismatic and radiant and okay. beloved person. Yeah. So talented and so promising in every way. And the fact that she would throw herself from a building when she was 27 years old was just mm-hmm. um, inconceivable to me. Yes. I kept thinking Such about it. Such a violent it. way. Such a violent way to mm-hmm. end one's life. There's no second guessing that. Right. You mean to do right. it? Yes. It's as emphatic as it could be. Yes. And it turned out that she chose to die the very day that her husband, they were newlyweds, mm-hmm. was flying from London to Los Angeles mm-hmm. to begin their life together. On the 4th of July. On the 4th of July. Which I found interesting as I continued to read and hear about her journey because I couldn't help but think of symbolism with independence. Yes. Yes. Very powerful statement she was making as she was leaving this earth. She wanted to be free. Mm -hmm. And I think having done a lot of research now on suicide, Mm -hmm. I realize that many people in their desperation think that they're freeing everybody around them. Mm -hmm. That by by ending their life, they're somehow liberating the people they love Mm -hmm. to move forward without Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And um, it's sort of one of the ways in which people's thinking is so distorted um, in those moments of crisis. I had a good friend, her husband uh, committed suicide. As a matter of fact, I was on the phone with her a few minutes before it happened. And um, it was that he thought he was releasing her of this burden. Right. And um, the wounds that that began to open up for that family was just, it was just so difficult. But when you're in that state of mind, that's not a clear thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, it was interesting to me to learn that many people, if you can get them through that 30-day period of mm-hmm. acute crisis, mm-hmm. they never try and kill themselves again. Mm. So it is a momentary thing. It can be you know, premeditated. It can be something one's been thinking about for many months. Mm-hmm. But if people can get in there and help, then that eases people out of that crisis. And many people who survive a suicide attempt not only never try again, but can't imagine that they did try wow. to take their life. Wow. In fact, people, I write a little bit about the Golden Gate Bridge, mm-hmm. which sadly has become sort of a suicide yeah, destination. You that in the yeah. Book. yeah. And one of the people who survived, very few people survive, but he said the as he was letting go of the rail, mm. he realized everything in his life could be fixed, except that he had just let go of the oh rail. Oh, my God. And to have that feeling while falling would be uh, just, uh, it's hard to even imagine yes. what that feels like. Yes. So he was lucky enough to get another chance. But I think we don't always realize mm-hmm. not only how troubled people around us are, but mm-hmm. how easy it is yeah. to just go in there and say, how can I help? One of the things as I was reading and doing some research, and when I was thinking about the book, because there's so much in here, and I was like, oh my God, my fear today was I have all these notes and we're not going to get through everything I wanted to talk about. Um, But I was thinking, and I happened to open up the first couple of pages, and I was looking under the subject matter of if I was looking for this book, where I would find it. And I was surprised to find Um, That it didn't identify relationships. Oh, that's interesting. Because that was the core for me. It was three relationships in very critical times. It was you and your daughter. It was you and your mother. And then it was Lacey and her mother. And I started thinking about the complexities of mother-daughter relationships, Right. right? And you were in this mode to go on a journey because you wanted it to be different for your daughter. But you didn't know how. And as you were stumbling into this life, life of Lacey, it was opening up and recognizing that you wanted something different for your daughter than right. what you had and then what Lacey had with her mother. So I was just really surprised that um, 
as powerful as relationships are, that that was one of the things that I yeah, didn't I see. think you're right. I think it should be. Yeah, I think it's listed under some very grim yes. subject headings: suicide, yeah. mental illness. But it's actually, I think there's a lot of humor in the book. Mm-hmm. There is, and um, you know, the nicest thing of all is that it it has a very happy ending mm-hmm. because it has an amazing ending. Yeah, yeah. I kind of think of it as a sort of falling back in love mm-hmm. with my life, and that's book. I think that's what made me think of it as a relationship because you have these three relationships, and you have all these tentacles, right? We we all know um, every relationship has a challenge. If you've been in a relationship more than five minutes, there's right, a challenge right, in a relationship, right, right? right? And so there's all these different tentacles um, off of these three relationships. But um, each of the subject matters that we talk about are hard subject matters that sometimes don't have happy endings. But this had a great ending through this journey. So I love the fact that how you, especially how you ended the book with your daughters on the beach, I thought that was a great way oh, to so bring glad. it back. Yeah. It was actually very hard to end the yeah. book because any way in which my daughters were brought in was a little bit um, challenging mm-hmm. because I wanted to respect the fact that they really exist mm-hmm. as three-dimensional people mm-hmm. and I used their names, which was sort of a problem mm-hmm. at one point for my older daughter. Um, but it's kind of hard to write about real people, for me anyway, mm-hmm. without using the reality of their names and physical characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. And I kept trying to give them different <laughs> names, really bad names, like Marina, and I forget, Iris. But it was, it's hard yeah. because they're 20 the and 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so yeah. they need the freedom to write their own story. Right, yeah, I understand that. But there was no way for me to tell my story about mm-hmm. my way out without them because... They're really what they're brought me into the world. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You were the. They were the reason you were fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that exactly. My my when my older daughter was sort of poised on the brink of adolescence, mm-hmm. which was when I had gotten lost mm-hmm. in this very violent relationship, mm-hmm. I was so terrified mm-hmm. for her, and I thought that everywhere she went, there was peril and you know, people lurking mm-hmm. and, and I wouldn't let them eat ice cream that had ingredients mixed into it <laughs> because I decided that must be incredibly toxic. I mean, I was afraid of everything oh, and, um, and it was starting to really take a toll wow, on them. Wow. And I realized, you know, how many of these addictions or, um, disturbances are cyclical mm-hmm. are generational. Are. And I thought, I'm not going to pass on mm-hmm. the result of this mm-hmm. violence. You have to make that conscious yeah. decision. Yeah, and yeah. it's hard. It is very you tough. You have to sort of make it again every day. Yes, you do, you do. I I, uh, I definitely understand that. I have, uh, my husband and I, we were talking about this earlier, I've been married 35 years, my husband and I just have one son, and I remember nothing um, to the degree of what you've you've experienced here, but I just remember... Um, at the time, there had been no one that had ever graduated from college in my family. Oh, wow. And I remember saying, okay, this is ridiculous. The cycle has to stop. Right. I have to make a conscious decision. Right. I was already married with a child. But there was this conversation that I had. I have to make a conscious decision to change. Right. But then once you say that, the work then begins, right? The work. Yeah. And I think one of the things I feel we don't do a good job of in our culture mm-hmm. is talking about the hard work that it takes mm-hmm. to live a life mm-hmm. and to make a 35-year-long marriage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to, you know, figure out who you are and not be afraid to go out into the world and do what you think you can do mm-hmm. and what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of confusing messages in our world, especially post-election, about, you know, how women can make their way in the right, world right. without um, discomforting all these men who may not be ready for right. us to do all the things that we're ready to, to do. do. There was um, one of the humor things that I um, picked up on in the book. I love when you were 
um, stalking Isabel and you had, was it the, what did you, the hat you wore? You yeah, were, I wore a little, like a Sherlock Holmes yes, kind of visor. Yes, I thought that was so cute. And then I love the part where you had borrowed your friend's car and ran into the side of the bus. Yeah. And the bus driver's like, yeah. I'm a bus. Yeah. How could How you not yeah. see me? There's a lot of street and driving related things in the book <laughs> yes. that don't go well because I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned to drive till I moved out here. I was mm-hmm. in my mid-20s. Okay. And and that was incredibly challenging, remains incredibly challenging mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and it was sort of ironic that I was a road scholar because in terms of the road, <laughs> the road. it was anything but scholarly. <laughs> it's really sad. And interestingly, I, I don't know if this is true for your son, but mm-hmm. many kids are not learning to drive in the way that oh, we yes. all couldn't wait yes. to get out. Yes. Um, because it's all you talked yeah, about. It's you couldn't all wait you talked about. to get out of yes. that house yes. and, and away. Yes. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. It's different. Well, yeah, he's it's much older, but, um, but it was the same experience for him. Uh, he definitely couldn't wait to get the license, get the car. Right. My husband used to take him, and uh, they would drive in the parking lot, and that yes. kind of thing at yes. night. Yes, we visited so, a yeah. lot of nighttime yeah. parking lots. Yeah. yeah, I picked up on the bus uh, humor, which was funny because then I think uh, maybe four or five chapters later, you made the comment, "I just wanted to be seen." And I thought, wow, that's interesting with the whole bus. How did you not see me right, I'm right here? And then right. you made that statement right. a little later. I think just understanding where you were in your journey. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think we all want to be seen. Mm-hmm. I think that that's sort of a basic human need. And I think it's very hard sometimes to say, I'm here. Here's what I feel. Mm-hmm. And, and especially as you and I were saying, for girls, I think yeah. we're sort of brought up to think that we should be both perfect and invisible. Right. Right. Those are each individually extremely difficult, difficult things to, to do, do, let yes. alone in tandem. Yes. And one thing I really, really feel strongly about for girls is that perfection is not mm-hmm. um, an object of aspiration. Mm-hmm. I don't think it exists. I don't mm-hmm. think it's something that girls should drive themselves to be. Mm-hmm. And I think these girls are driving themselves so yeah. hard yeah. to be so good at everything and mm-hmm. to be, you know, while seeming hot, as they mm-hmm. put it to the boys. So and, what was that pressure like on the journey? I mean, you had already, I mean, you were already at Yale. You yeah. Had, you know. I was at Yale, I think. And I, then you go on to Oxford. I mean, like, the Yale by itself is an amazing experience. Now you're, you're going on the pressure, you know, you go on to Oxford, the pressure yeah. that you must have been under. What was that like? I think there's a lot of pressure for all of us, whatever our credentials. Mm-hmm. I think we all feel like we're holding up a, a sort of invisible standard. Mm-hmm. And especially girls who do well in school, we don't want to disappoint our teachers. Right. We don't want to trouble our parents. Mm-hmm. I felt like when I was getting into trouble with this man, who's mm-hmm. much older than I mm-hmm. and extremely brutal, I never told anyone mm-hmm. because I thought I'm kind of a pretty together 16 year old, even though mm-hmm. of course I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I thought I should be able to figure a way out of this. Mm-hmm. And if I can't, and oh. I'm, you know, I don't know. I thought I was so young to yeah, have that point of view that yeah, you thought you could figure your way out of yeah, that. And I thought no one else can figure it out if I can't, cause I'm in it and I wow. should know how to get out of this wow. on my own. And I do think and now reading a lot of people who've been abused and stayed mm-hmm. for much longer than mm-hmm. anyone should mm-hmm. in an abusive relationship, you often read that people think there's no way out. Yes. yes. And so you've got to sort of yes. dig in and try and yes. do the best you can. I served um, for seven, seven, eight years on the board for domestic violence intervention and um, served as president. And that was always the common. Um, it was we saw that women that were in it just absolutely saw no way out of it. And then even when they got out of it, how easily they would slip back into it, yeah. whether it was with that abuser or another abuser, yes. um, they hadn't recognized those signs, right? They were, they 
of people who, because these guys are lurking. They're looking yeah, for someone. They're predators. They're predators. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of what, you know, we tried to teach with at the organization is understanding that these guys are predators. There's, there's certain things that they're looking for. And um, to be leery and be weary of those relationships. So it was tough to watch. Um, yeah some of those slip back and we, there was times when we lost um women to violence yeah. at the shelter yeah no yeah. i know yeah. i know those statistics are incredibly mm-hmm. high i mean at the moment it's thought that one in four young women goes off to college and experiences it's, some yes. form of sexual abuse yes. which is an incredibly high it's number it's crazy yeah, that is. how can we send our children mm-hmm. to school not knowing that they're going to be safe mm. i mean that feels like a civil rights issue to mm-hmm. me yeah and i think happily some of these girls who are survivors have gotten together to do something about that in terms of title nine mm-hmm. and saying if these universities are going to get you know government funding then they have to right, be held to, to a higher standard right, right. of safety right. but i think i think in terms of being seen a lot of people mistake the way that they're seen in a violent relationship for some real kind of recognition mm. and that does draw people back mm-hmm. it's very intoxicating mm-hmm. to be so important to someone that he'll put his hand through a wall mm-hmm. when you upset him and if you don't really understand how unhealthy that is right especially the women who haven't had that role model at all that's what they've seen their mothers right. go through or right. their grandmothers go through they actually believe right that that is what a relationship is because the sign of a healthy relationship hasn't necessarily been something that they've ever seen. So just helping them understand that, no, it's not okay, that's not love, that's not affection, that's right. not being seen, right. um, is, um, it's tough for them, and you're trying to give them that example. I want to ask about um, a little more about your relationship with um, your mother, because I... I was curious as to, once I read what she um, said when you shared about the physical abuse, um, I was curious just what she said about your achievements. So when she found out you were going off to Yale or she found out you were going off to um, Oxford, what what was that dynamic like for you? You know, I think my mom, I have asked her about this years later, why she never said, I think you're smart or mm-hmm. I think you're pretty or I think you're mm-hmm. whatever and whatever. And she said to me, I think you're just getting so much praise at school that Mm. I don't think you need that at home. And of course, now that I have daughters and you have a son, I know that children, there's no one like your parents to say, again, I see you. Mm -hmm. I see how hard you're working. I Mm -hmm. see what a good friend you're being. I see, you know, what a good citizen you're being. Mm -hmm. Nothing can replace that. Was that something that was missing in her life as a child then? So she couldn't give it? She didn't have it to give, Yeah, I think that's, that's... very true. And I do think back on the women of my mom's generation. Mm-hmm. She's in her 80s now. Okay. I think that they didn't get a lot of recognition and a lot of chance to express who they were. True. Many of them were home, mm-hmm. you know, with kids without anyone helping. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure that they had many dreams that were deferred. And, you know, that that can breed a lot of yes. resentment yeah. and hostility. Um, so I, I kind of understand that. I, I want to read this. Um, I had marked a couple. Of, I had like 20 passages. Oh, marked. I love that. So I had to get it down to three. Um, but I wanted to read this one because this is, um, there's two parts to this one. This is a little bit about uh, the conversation you and your mom have after you've um, kind of shared with her um, what you've gone through. And this is actually your response now. You're, you are realizing 
that you're asking her for something that she couldn't give you. And um, so it says, I had to stop asking her for something she could not give me. And maybe I didn't need it anymore. I wasn't going to take, it wasn't going to take away my sorrow. I could only do that. I knew that now. If she thought I was dangerous and cruel, so powerful, maybe I was strong enough to do this, to let go of my rage, to acknowledge, to accept my mother's limitations, that she would defend herself instead of me. I thought that was such a powerful moment, and I I really just wanted to, if you would share, just kind of at that moment as you are trying to reconcile what you've just heard And now what does that mean for you going forward? The realization kind of like, give me an idea of where you were in that moment, because that had to be extremely difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. And and I think it's difficult to always let go of a dream. I had an idea of what my relationship with my mother would be like, Mm. and and it was never going to happen. And I felt like I'm going to spend my whole life Mm. waiting for her to become the person that I wish she had been. And then there are all these people in my life, in my present day life, who really do love mm-hmm. me and really do see me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of like lean into where the love is. What I, I didn't understand why I was allowing the darkness of my past, of my family history, to continue to have such a strong hold on me. Mm, that's it good. felt at some point I felt like I'm old enough, I'm strong enough, I've got children of my own. I've got to move forward towards them rather mm-hmm. than keep looking back. Because holding on would have been unhealthy. It's not. You would have been trying to take it into the relationship with your girls. I think my girls were living in the shadow of violence that they didn't even suspect because I had never talked to them about what had happened to me, Mm -hmm. and yet in every way and for every day they were living under the burden of it because Mm -hmm. I was so afraid. I felt Mm -hmm. so fragile. I didn't trust that the world was a wonderful place and that it would be for them. Mm -hmm. So I feel like they were really suffering Mm -hmm. from something they they didn't even know had ever taken place. And it was interesting as I started thinking about Lacey's journey, you know, as we take these two journeys that were, that are beginning to intertwine, even though you haven't even met, there really, there were a lot of similarities about what they were experiencing. But I know there wasn't necessarily an aha moment about why Lacey took her own life. But for me, there was a little bit in that when I read how her mother had committed suicide, it gave me such insight to how overbearing her mother must have been in her life that she decided to go to the same hotel. She tried to check in the same hotel room and take her and she ultimately took her life in the same way. That was so powerful and it gave such insight into Lacey. I think so, and I, it's one of those things you could never make up if yes. you were writing fiction because yes. it's too absurd and mm-hmm. odd. Yeah. Who you know? Who would think that that the mother of a child would go to the very same hotel and throw herself from the very same balcony? Mm-hmm. Although it was thwarted, she couldn't get into that room, so she threw herself from the room next door. Mm. And there's something about that that just for me, defies understanding. But Mm -hmm. I think she was so desperate Mm -hmm. to be reunited with her daughter. And she had two other children who Mm -hmm. were, you know, fully dimensional and very uh, tuned into her, but it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. She just wanted to go where Lacey was. And I think the note that she left was that I couldn't live without Lacey. Yeah. 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 Which then also gives you insight into Kyle and Corinne and the struggle that Yes. You know, they had. Yes. I was really touched by your relationship to Kyle because he opened up to you in a very intimate way when you guys, when he shared with you about the ring. Yes. What was that like having to have such a tough conversation and 
asking someone to let you come into such a personal space for them. And then he ultimately broke down and shared with you. Yeah, I think it, it's a bit like raising a child. Mm-hmm. You know how children have sort of an automatic shut-off valve mm-hmm. and they just let you go into mm-hmm. a conversation yeah. about something just as far as they can let you take it? Mm-hmm. I felt like when I was interviewing her survivors, I was just going to try and follow their cues. And if they wanted to take me somewhere where I needed to go in terms of being able to tell Lacey's story, I just would sort of go on the ride with them but I tried never to push them because it's such a private thing and such a complex thing this grief and I I always tried to say is there anything is there any part of this story you wouldn't want me to tell Mm -hmm. and that's when her sister said I don't want you to use her name Mm -hmm. and so very early on many years before I actually wrote the book itself I was thinking of another name for her and I'm not quite sure where the name Lacey came from. Mm. But over the years, I realized it looks a lot like key and that she had really been the key, Lacey, for me to opening the door out of this prison that I lived in and into the into the sun, into the world. Interesting. Wow. Wow. Very powerful. Very powerful. I um, Kyle touched my heart. Do you mind if I read this fast? Of course. Oh, my God. He touched my heart when um, he shared about the ring. I... I thought in that moment, so he's sharing with you what it was like 10 years ago when he's cleaning the blood from the ring of his sister, and right. he's now going to the airport, right, to meet Simon, her husband. Right. And he wanted to have this ring to be able to give to him. It was so important. And, you know, you're, I have siblings. I can't, siblings. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for him to have to do that, not only... Um, does he have to give this news to her spouse? But he was insistent on, he wanted to be able to have this ring to take with him. So, and I thought it was so special to me. To me, it told me how he felt about you because I, I would definitely understand that you would want to be able to talk to people, right? So we know that talking helps the healing process with something like this. But I think for you to be a stranger all these years later, and he was willing to share something so intimate, to me told me about how you made him feel and I thought that was very powerful so um after after I was notified by the coroner's office of her suicide I drove to the city hall coroner's office to collect her personal belongings the police found at the scene it contained her briefcase wallet and other personal effects including the suicide note and her jewelry that she was wearing when she died the jewelry contained her wedding ring which she and Simon had commissioned which meant a lot to both to both of them. It was a beautiful ring that was rather understated. It was a reflection upon my sister's personality. The ring and a few other items were given in a cursory cleaning up by the coroner's office. I felt it important to have that ring with me at the airport when I told Simon. When I looked at the ring and the other jury, I noticed that there was some dried blood on that ring that had been missed. So I washed them in my kitchen sink and apartment, and it seemed sort of surreal, almost out of a movie. I was going to ask my girlfriend to do it for me. But upon further reflection, it it just seemed something a brother would take care of personally. Wow. He was such a good brother to her. And I think that's part of the pain of the people who are left behind because they would have done anything Mm -hmm. for the person they've lost. If only they'd known, Mm -hmm. if only she'd been able to say, look, I'm really troubled. Things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. I, I hate my job. Mm -hmm. I'm scared. I have a new husband. I, I don't know what it means to be in a marriage. I mean, there were so many things swirling around, I'm sure for her as for all of us. And if she'd only been able to say, you know, 
feel so close to you tonight. Mm-hmm. They were having their last evening together, you know, having a meal and sharing mm-hmm. a bottle of wine. If she'd just mm-hmm. been able to say, I'm afraid and mm-hmm. I don't know what to do. But there was hesitation, right? Because didn't I read that when she checked herself into the hotel, she kept extending her stay? Yes, yes. She, I think she was very um, ambivalent about it. And she had tried to kill herself differently about 10 days before she'd driven a car off of Mulholland Drive Mm -hmm. um, into a ravine. Mm -hmm. And she insisted that another car had come towards her too fast and she'd swerved out of the way. But of course, when they went back to look, there were no tire tracks. She really had made that story up. Mm. And I think she found herself at the bottom of a ravine alive as it happened in a car that her little brother had helped her buy. So he had saved her life in that moment because the airbags had activated. But I think she decided that she was going to do it. And when she would do it, she would really do it. And obviously jumping from a great height mm-hmm. is is definitive. Mm-hmm. I, she didn't want to fail again. And, and frankly, she was someone who hadn't really failed mm-hmm. at many things. At many things, right. Yeah. So I imagine she might have been uh, very frustrated with herself. Mm-hmm. If she was going to do this, mm-hmm. she should do it right. So what's happening with you as you're finding out all these facts about Lacey, and then you're dealing with your own challenges of what you had been through, the abuse that you had suffered, the um, challenges that you were having, um, trying to find peace with your mom and this journey. Kind of, what's your frame of mind? Are you thinking, um, you know, is it is it how cathartic is it for you? to learn, you know, sometimes we see someone else's situation and we go, okay, well, maybe I can get through mine because, oh my God, I have another chance. What was that like for you? You know, I found her to be sort of a strange sister to Mm -hmm. me. She was kind of a mirror image in some ways, but in other ways, she was just a kind of kindred spirit. And I felt, I knew what it was like not to be able to ask anybody for help. That's Mm -hmm. where I had lived Mm -hmm. a lot of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think as I was working on the book, if you had said to any of my close friends, you know, does this person who lives down the street from you seem troubled? They think, no, Mm -hmm. she's the mom we asked to pick the kids up at the bus stop or watch them while they're in their swimming. I think that I hid my um, sadness and Mm -hmm. sense of disassociation. It was probably the thing I was best at Mm -hmm. in a way. And I think that's true of many people who suffer from PTSD. You you, you sort of figure out a way to move through the world without letting anybody know how much mm-hmm. you're hurting. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the better you are at that, the harder it is finally to say, I'm not okay. Mm, that's a good point. That's a good point. Because you've, you've realized now I have... Um, faked out so many people yeah. right now I've got to undo all of what yeah, I've been, yeah. I've got to go to these people and yeah. say guess what mm-hmm. I'm not the I'm mom really not. that you think I am mm-hmm. I'm not the wife I'm not the daughter I'm not the sister I'm this frightened person living inside a, a prison of grief so what was it like for you to have to sit down and talk to your daughters about what you had gone through these are beautiful young women that are growing up and now you've got to expose them to the challenge of what it's like to be out in that world and when people take advantage of them what was that like for you for my older daughter who's a lot like me she's kind of introspective Mm -hmm. um I know her well enough to know that if I leave something for her to read where she thinks I don't know she'll find it Mm -hmm. she will pick it up and read it (laughs) And so I did that. You know how moms have their clever tricks? Now, of course, I've given that away. Um, But she never wanted to read the book. And then the night before it was going to the printer for the final pages to be proofed, I left it 
and she, on the, and she read it and she came to me and she said I, I don't want you to use my name mm. and I was up all night trying to figure out another name that would scan with mm-hmm. the same letters mm-hmm. so that the publisher could replace <laughs> it everywhere in the book up all night she of course had a very good sleep mm-hmm. having told me this mm-hmm. and she woke up the next morning and she said I think it's okay but it was very challenging I think for both girls differently um, to be part of a story that they didn't know they were in the midst of mm-hmm. um, was kind of eye-opening mm-hmm. to them. My younger daughter, who's 15, hasn't read it. Mm-hmm. I don't think she will do that anytime soon. Interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, they each have a different way of reacting, but they both want to teach. And so I think the idea that maybe the book would help someone mm-hmm. has, I think, freed each of them to say, mm-hmm. okay, I can, I can have this book in my life. Because it sort of became a third mm-hmm. child in a way. I mm-hmm. worked on it for probably close to 17 years wow yeah which is a very so how long, long time. was that journey that span from when you found the article the the obituary obituary on Lacey to you actually hired a private investigator yeah. to help so like what was that journey like how well long? it's a bit compressed in the book but it took me a long time to get to a place where I thought it was okay mm-hmm. to go in search of her because I I'm I was very aware of boundaries having mm-hmm. had them violated in my <laughs> yeah. life and yeah. I didn't want to do the wrong thing yeah. by pressing too hard mm-hmm. or um you know sort of asking questions I mean I, I'm not an investigative reporter so I would practice late at night these questions and try and, you know, adjust the tone of voice and stuff. I, I just didn't know how to do it right. And I kind of blundered in there and mm-hmm. just thought, I'm just going to bring my heart mm-hmm. and hope that they know that I'm here for the right reasons, mm-hmm. that I really want to share her story. Has um, any of the family members read the book? Do you know? No, you know, I think my next step is really to reach out to them. I know that they're, I see her sister, uh, her name, real name isn't Corinne, but I see her face I'm newly on Facebook Mm. and so I have that feeling of all those faces Mm -hmm. from the past floating by Um, and I've seen her face a couple of times so I feel like the next step is for me to reach out and say you know here's my book Mm -hmm. but what what strengthens me in terms of thinking that it's a good thing for them I sure hope it is Mm -hmm. is that her friend who was the first person I spoke to said I said do you ever think about her and he said, I think about her every day mm-hmm. because I think we need to keep these things alive mm-hmm. and we need to ask ourselves if there was more we could have done. Mm-hmm. And so I really thought the book was a way of keeping her alive mm-hmm. and, um, you know, sort of helping her heal in a way. I felt like her spirit was restless. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that it, it was beckoning to me. I felt like she needed the rest of her story told, too. And so I thought that was something I could give mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i think it's it's i think it's a beautiful story in that um she helped save you and not knowing that you know she could do that yeah with such a final fatal last decision yeah right that her love still stayed here on this earth and I think that's right and it found you and it, it helped you realize how amazing life was in front of you, that you wanted to participate in it all along. And um, you were seeing it from a distance, which it was interesting to me that um, I read you were a literary manager and you reviewed stage plays, yeah, right? So yeah. I thought just kind of all of these things were interesting as I was reading this, but she brought you back into that world of which you found it tough to enter. Yeah, she brought me into the world, mm-hmm. and, and I feel like 
I wish that I could have saved her Mm -hmm. in the way that she saved me because Mm -hmm. I feel like I now see how easy it is, also difficult, but easy to to just reach out to someone and say, you know, I'm here. Mm -hmm. And as I've been going around the country um, doing book events and stuff, a, a woman who lived next door to me when we were at Oxford came up at the end of a book event and she said, I always thought you were trembling on the other side of the wall. And I thought that was a really beautiful and moving idea because I think there are many people in our lives who are trembling on the other side Mm -hmm. of the wall. And we may feel it, they may know we feel it, but to take that step forward and and really reach out to someone, it's it's hard. Mm. It's very awkward. It It can feel like you're blundering, but it's absolutely crucial. Yes. Wow, wow. I wanted to uh, talk about Michael because you talk about, because relationships, right? This book is still... Lots of relationships, and you let us in to some very um, intimate things with your husband. Um, and I love the fact of even as you guys were having your challenges, how supportive he was through this journey. He just comes in and gives you the card and says, "You know, yeah, here's the number four private <laughs> investigator." <laughs> I know. I was like, that's I know. awesome. That's great. It's funny. In one of the early reviews, they described him as my astonishingly patient husband, <laughs> and I'm just—I think whenever I look at him, he practically wears that as a as a banner. But um, I think he understood Mm -hmm. that I needed to do this in order to heal myself Mm -hmm. and that it was going to liberate our daughters, Mm -hmm. too. And I kind of think that in our culture, we don't have a lot of information about how to choose someone to love and what that means, who's the right person. And I feel like if you're really lucky, you find someone who kind of Mm -hmm. helps you unlock Mm -hmm. whatever the knot is from childhood that's keeping you... And when you said in the book you wanted to be seen... He was seeing you all yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. For better and for worse, mm-hmm. the way people who love us do. Right. And I think that's one of the remarkable things about love is someone who will see you and love you still. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't I didn't feel that, I think, as a kid growing up. I felt like I was constantly being evaluated. Um, and, and for me, the best thing about a long marriage is you kind of at some point relax and say, this is who I am. Yes. This is what I look like in my pajamas. Yes. And and how lucky are we to have each other? It's so freeing. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> it's so freeing, it's right? It's the best it thing is. there is. It is. I There's think. a point you get in your marriage, you're just yeah. like, eh, this yeah. is what I Yeah, am. here I am. Here I, am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I wake up in the morning, this is how I look. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so great for kids, yeah. too, to see mm-hmm. that kind of, level of acceptance mm-hmm. because they're so hard on themselves mm-hmm. as they're growing up and, and this society doesn't help at yeah all. at all yeah at all especially girls yes. I think girls are under tremendous pressure yes they are to do everything mm-hmm. and to be perfect and to need nothing to mm-hmm. ask for very little mm-hmm. to ask for that's so key to ask for very little yeah and um to look you know airbrushed Yes. All day, every day. Yes. When that that is not reality, and the yeah. pressure is overwhelming for young women. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask about um, Michael's cancer. See, he, he's cancer free. He's Still cancer free. Well. Awesome. Yes. Thank you for awesome. asking. Awesome. That is great. I um I love how long I'm going to ask this question. How long was it when you, uh, or how long had you been married when you found the questionnaire? Of where the rabbi had asked, the, yes. "Oh my God, that I have that passage. I have oh, to read that one. That's, oh, I it's love beautiful. that. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, I'm so beautiful, glad. Beautiful. That I I found it much much later, and I realized this. These are questions that the rabbi asked us on the mm-hmm. eve of our marriage, and I had never known mm-hmm. that he'd done that. Let alone that Michael had written these answers. And you know, to be reminded of this person that you've chosen with whom you've struggled, of to be reminded of what a beautiful person he is was mm-hmm. just for me kind of life altering this was such insight like when you're reading books i 
I love that you shared pictures of your family. Oh, as well. good. I thought okay. that was great. Um, but I love when I'm reading something and I can visually see him writing those answers um, because this, I just thought this was the best thing. Um, so it says, what the question is, why are you marrying this person? I do not believe there are reasons for marrying. I thought that was so funny. It's very (laughs) lawyer-like, too. It's very Michael. Let me give you this first. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, So I'm going to just go in. It says, because I love Jessica, early in our relationship, I had what it took to be, I had what it took to be an insight. The feelings I had for Jessica led me to it. I wrote it down one morning sitting in my office. It suddenly occurred to me that I finally understood why people married. It is because the feeling of love is so unbordered and yet so dense that it is impossible to express it in any other act. I read that and I went, oh, wow. Yeah. That is so beautiful. And then um, he says, any words, any gifts... Any other acts would be inadequate um, approximation of feelings. I realized my feelings for Jessica could only find their expression through being lived out over a lifetime. Each of our moments together, from the mundane to the life-defining, would be the articulation of my love for her. Each would have as its source, as its meaning, my feelings for Jessica. Each child, each fight, each goodnight kiss. Trips to the dry cleaners, growing old and dying. Nor do I believe that the feelings are used to set up, depleted through their giving life to each of these moments. My love for Jessica has only grown larger as we have grown closer. I thought that was... It's as beautiful as anything could be. Mm -hmm. I think he's sort of secretly the writer in the family. (laughs) I think he may think that too. But, you know, it's kind of amazing. It's such a different expression from an attorney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he's really a philosopher. Mm -hmm. He was a philosophy major, actually, who ended up going to law school Mm because there were no jobs for teachers at the time. But um, I think that that when you find out who you're really married to, if you've been lucky enough to -hmm. to marry the right person, Mm -hmm. it's... It's unbelievable. It's Mm -hmm. an unbelievable gift. And he's been going around with me as I've been doing these events around the country. Mm -hmm. He he actually described it as an extended play date Mm -hmm. for us because we've been driving and watching the leaves change Mm -hmm. and getting takeout pizza and eating it in the car. It's kind of road trip. And it's just wonderful when you spend time with the person you love and you you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, right? I was saying, how could I help people understand what it's like to be on this side of marriage? Yes. Right. And there is something about enduring. I can't explain it. I know when you're in it. I know when you're in it five years and seven years, you can't imagine, you know. Yes. And I think there's a shift in us, right? I know for me, I got married so young, but there were times when you're growing apart and you see it and you have to make, it's to our conversation earlier, a conscious decision to do the work, to do the heavy lifting to bring it back together. And I think that's um, at a part, a point where so many people say, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to do the heavy lifting. But if you could get them to see what it's like to be on this side of marriage, yeah. it's not perfect. But there is something I can't imagine my life any other way. I, you know, we finish one another's sentences. It's this, it's it's the person that I want to talk to when anything happens right. to me. I want to pick up the phone. I right. want to track him down wherever yeah, he's at. Yeah, no, I understand that. And I love that experience. And I think that's what being one 
what someone really is. Yeah. And, you know, Rilke, the poet Rilke talks about the fact that we have this idea that you're supposed to merge with that other person and Mm -hmm. become one person. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that we're just solitudes who border and greet each other, Mm -hmm. which I think is a beautiful Mm -hmm. idea that you can just get as close as you can get. And then you're always going to be separate. You're always going to be alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the terrifying existential truth of life. But I think that idea of doing the work is true for our relationships with pretty much anybody, with our kids, Mm -hmm. with our colleagues. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to get in there and Mm -hmm. say, I don't think this is going well, and Mm -hmm. I don't think you understand me, and I don't think I, I get where you're coming from. And I think some people go on sort of remote control. They don't, or autopilot, I guess it is. They're not willing to sort of stop and do that awkward thing of saying, is this not going well for you because it doesn't feel good to me? It's, it's, we have to own it, right? To do the work, you have to be willing to own your part. Right. And to own your part means you've got to take a hard look in the mirror and say, what is it about me that I have to change so that we can do the hard work. And the other right. person has to be willing as right. well, because if the other person isn't willing, it's not going to work. But you both have to kind of have that aha moment at the same time, but at different times. Right. And you keep ha- you have to keep having, having it them. through a long yes. marriage. Yes. I think you have to be able to forgive the other person, yes. and you have to be able to say, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. which was not something I think I grew up hearing I didn't at all I think maybe our parents were of a generation yes. where they were you know had all of their own and struggles. I struggled I was like I, 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 yeah I, okay wait yeah I, I, I. <laughs> it's very hard it's very hard it's very difficult it's very hard but once I learned to say it I was like yeah what it's was not that, what so was bad that, yeah what was that all about I say yeah. it to my daughters yeah. uh, probably more than I should because yeah. I probably make more mistakes than I should but um I say gosh I you know if I had that to do again, I probably wouldn't have made that choice. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have used that tone of voice. I wouldn't have, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and my daughters, I think, feel the freedom to come up to me and say, I, there was once a girl who was really bullying my older daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw her on the campus and I said, I'm going to go up to her and tell her you can't do that. <laughs> and my daughter was like, "You, can't, mom, don't. And I said, it takes a village to mm-hmm. raise a child. And she said, you're not part of her village. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. That's a boundary that I can't cross. Mm-hmm. And luckily, my 11-year-old is wise enough to see it. So I feel like, you know, they're here to teach us, yes. as we all are. Yes. And and Lacey was, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like everywhere in life are these ways or images or expressions or people, strangers passing, mm-hmm. who have something to teach you mm-hmm. if you're willing to open Be yourself open up. To it. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. I think... It's a growth, right? I think when you want to grow on your journey, you're trying to figure out who you are, or, or and I believe walking in your purpose, you do begin to open yourself up where you start to see, okay, oh, that was a life lesson. Right. Right? And and you start to see failures not as failures, but as just lessons. It didn't work. And it's like, oh, wait, I'm still here. It's yeah. actually okay that yeah. it didn't work. Yeah. And the fact that I'm here means I've got this great opportunity to try something new instead of holding on to something, which we tend to do, especially in relationships. When we've offended one another, we right. tend to hold it so close and we don't really understand the value of loss and not being able to get that moment back until yeah. it's too late. That's interesting. And go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, because I, I studied Shakespeare in, at Oxford and, and 
his late plays, everybody hates them, but one of the things I loved about them was there is a real sense of loss. Mm -hmm. And when people die, they don't reappear in Act 5. You know what I mean? You don't (laughs) see them sort of joining in hands and dancing at the end of someone's marriage. Things really are lost. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of actually growing up, Mm -hmm. is understanding that some things do go away. You Mm -hmm. can't undo them. You can't redo them. But you've got to take the lessons of them and Mm -hmm. carry them forward. Mm -hmm. I think in our culture, we think, you know, something bad happens to you and you sort of leave it behind you and move as quickly away from it as you can. And I feel through writing this book that I discovered that you've got to integrate those things into who you are. Mm -hmm. Because if you wait to leave them behind... Um, you'll just be waiting. You have to own them because there was a lesson in it for you. It wasn't just, I don't believe things just happen. I believe that there's a purpose. And um, when you're dealing with something, whether it's good or bad, there's a lesson in it. We leave good things behind too, right? Right. Because that's That's life. We're moving forward. We leave good things behind. Yes. And we're always willing to look at those. Yeah. Re-examine those over and over. But we have to be willing to have that growth and maturity and get to that next level in life and relationships that we want. We have to be willing to do the same thing in those difficult moments. And that's and that's when you find yourself on this side of marriage. Right. If you keep doing it. Right. You will find yourself on this side of marriage. If you don't, then you find yourself in a different place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I love this. I love this book. I will tell you this was You're a great, such a great, great, great reader. <laughs> I think you have to come on the rest of my book tour with me. I hope you, you will have to talk to your I husband. I won't even show you, like, I'm a I highlighter, note writer. It's I've got wow in the margins. I, I, like, you, I get so into reading. That. So... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, um, oh, I wanted to ask you this question. You directed at AFI, right? Yes. So any thought on this being uh, a feature? I'd love to see it as a movie. Would you? Yeah. Would you direct it? I don't know that I'm that person. Mm-hmm. Um, although I loved directing, mm-hmm. I loved being responsible for all those people mm-hmm. um, and trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a challenging story to make into a film because it is the story of actually of three different women, mm-hmm. me, Lacey, and in a way my daughter coming into womanhood right. and sort of staking her claim to mm-hmm. her own life. It's three gener- It's three dimensional, it's three generations, It's it's got so much, but it's such great stuff there. Well, I love that. And one of my goals in writing it was to try and make it cinematic mm-hmm. so that the, it, there are sort of these fade in and fade out mm-hmm. to scenes and stuff, mm-hmm. that there is a kind of blurring of boundaries in terms of when time you know, what's past, what's present, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted it to feel very fluid and very liquid, the way mm-hmm. time does, mm-hmm. really. I felt like it. I wanted it to feel like water, mm-hmm. almost, because I think memory is a, is like water. It is. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So how old is Isabel now? She's almost 21. Okay. And Charlotte? And Charlotte's 15. Okay. Wow. This is Here amazing. Yeah. 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 And you shared the pictures, some of the pictures that she shared in the uh, book was amazing of you know, them as babies and your wedding picture that you shared with us and pictures with your mom when she came out to Oxford. Yeah. What's your relationship like now with your mom? Um, You know, I I kind of think it's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. My mom is still alive. I Mm -hmm. think the book's been hard for her. Um, But I don't think that's the end of the story. It's sort Mm -hmm. of like what we were saying a moment ago. I think there's hard work for each of us to do there, but Mm -hmm. I hope we'll do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I felt like it was important for me to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. And that required talking about my family and my my parents' marriage and mm-hmm. my brothers. And mm-hmm. there was no other way to tell the whole truth of what happened except by giving those it, yeah. those stories too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I I remember when I was pregnant. I <laughs> I 
did not want to have a girl. I was like, this is too hard <laughs> because I grew up with, um, I didn't have the best relationship growing up with my mother. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to have a child, it has to be a boy. There's just no option. And everyone was like, how are you, are you in control of yeah, that, Paula? Yeah. Like, no, I'm not, I'm having a boy. I don't care what anyone says. I'm having a boy. And so when my son was uh, born, the doctor said, oh, Miss Ellis, it's a boy. And I said, I know. <laughs> he goes, what? Of course. He's like, how do you know? Oh, I, I, I wouldn't that. have had anything else. A girl is too hard. It's hard. Because there is just so many complex things with a mother-daughter relationship that I don't necessarily see with my husband and um, our son. Yeah. Or mother and son, people say. There's yes. just a lot of love yes. coming it's in each direction. It's a lot easier. Yeah. It's a lot easier. Yeah. And there's this journey, um, you know, I think also, too, it's the times. Our mothers are probably the same age. My mom's 80. Yeah. And or will be 80 here in the next couple of days. And um, there's just this place in time. There's things you don't talk about. There's right. like, I hope she never sees this because just this little bit I said. <laughs> you know, there's just things that you don't say or right. talk about. Um, and I, I find that it is difficult for her to express that feeling of love. And um, almost to the point of sharing something like this would be a betrayal to her, right? Right. Yeah. 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 No, and you know, strangely, I'm a very private person. Mm -hmm. So the idea that I put this out there mm -hmm. is kind of odd to me. And I've gone to book events and people have sort of said things that they knew only from the book, even though they're strangers. Mm -hmm. And I'll never know as much about them. But again, I felt like I needed to talk about everything, therapy, you know, meds, whatever, mm -hmm. because I wanted whoever read the book who was also struggling to know, okay, so these are the parts of the puzzle that come together. I just felt like if I only tell part of the truth, it really has no value to anyone. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also probably not to me either. Mm -hmm. The liberation is in telling the whole truth yeah. and surviving yeah. it. You would have struggled if you could have only done part of it. Right. It would have hindered what you were trying to do, which the whole thing was trying to move forward. And yeah. if there's one, this, this one piece that is trying to hold you back, then how would you have been able to heal from that? Yeah, and I also think that telling the whole truth is actually not terrifying at all. Mm -hmm. I feel so much better mm -hmm. about my life. I feel freer. I feel lighter. Lighter, I was going to say lighter. So really, the burden of those secrets was just weighing me down so mm -hmm. terribly. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of wonderful to know that you can tell the truth about mm -hmm. where you've come from. I like this point that you share from um, Nelson Mandela. Um, forgives, forgiveness liberates the soul. It moves, it removes fear. That's why it's such a powerful weapon. I love that because I think when you said, um, feeling lighter, feeling freer, that's what makes me think of that because forgiveness allows that to happen. Yes. It's, it's a burden. Living in unforgiveness is such a burden. It is. I think anger of any kind mm -hmm. is poisonous. Mm -hmm. and, and I've seen people where... That unforgiveness is like on their back. Yeah. You can see it yeah, on them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one thing I hope people will get from reading the book is that it is possible to go through pain and mm -hmm. come out the other side. Mm -hmm. And that the people who love you are waiting there for you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it takes work and it's not a smooth linear path. Um, but I I'm happier than I ever thought I would be. Mm -hmm. I never thought I was one of those people who was destined to feel freedom in the way that I do. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of freedom through vulnerability in an mm -hmm. odd way. I mean, I think there's a lot of courage in being vulnerable and being transparent. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that. And Michael, my husband, would often say, other people know more about us than we think they do. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that was interesting. We're, we're hiding and protecting secrets that other people 
have long ago suspected, mm-hmm. there's really no reason to hide them yeah. or protect them anymore. That's, a, that's interesting that you talk about the vulnerability. I know um, coming up through, we were talking earlier, just coming up in the corporate environment, vulnerability was a weakness. You were not allowed to be vulnerable. Um, and now since three years removed from that corporate journey, I'm finding myself in positions where I have to be vulnerable. And it's a scary thing. Um, and you want to hold on to it. But when I release it, I feel so different. I'm like, yeah. I can't believe that yeah. I was letting no. that control me. Yeah, it's true. A friend of mine works in the government, and she was saying that now they're being asked to be more personal in their presentations, to be... The government. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens come January. Yeah. But she was yeah. saying, because she works in defense, and she was saying when she goes around and gives these talks about defense equipment and mm. budgets and stuff... She's being asked to tell people why she got into that kind of work and what it means to balance, you know, for women to balance family and work. And she said, I'm, I'm having to be personal in ways that I, I never had to be. Wow, that's interesting. But I think interesting. that's interesting. So authenticity is yes. suddenly a commodity. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It's uh, Which has its double yeah. edge. But suddenly that feeling of really knowing someone truthfully has become very important to mm-hmm, people. Because mm-hmm. I found my journey corporate was so guarded for lots of reasons um it's competitive you're you know the higher you get the more competitive it is the tighter the circle um and so you do find yourself from a vulnerable standpoint you always have to be on your p's and q's every i dotted every t cross you know um and so now being in this creative space i made the joke i directed i wrote and directed my first short um last year and i wouldn't let any, I didn't even want the editor in the room. Like, oh, wow. if I could have figured out a way to get the editor out of the room. Vulnerability. It was mine. It was, I wrote it, right? It was everything about me. I couldn't hide behind, I had a career where I could hide behind numbers. Either right. numbers work or they don't, right? right? So right. I didn't make the decision. The numbers don't work. But now, all of a sudden, it was me being vulnerable, letting people see a side of me, a creative side of me. And I would joke and I would say, um, I feel like I was walking around naked and everyone could see my cellulite. Like that's, yes. that's how no, the I totally understand. <laughs> and they say that first films are very autobiographical. Uh, I don't know if that's true of yours, but I have always thought that was interesting. I just heard someone say that, not, I mean, maybe three days ago. And as I, I sat back and I went, wow, there is, there is a lot of me in this. And I wrote it about addiction, of which I've never experienced addiction. My husband's never experienced addiction, but it was about a couple with an only child on a journey, and they both had addiction. So I was sitting there the other day going, what was the addiction? What was (laughs) it like? Because there's so much of that journey was us. And I had never thought of that until just the other day someone said that to me. You know, I think there's an argument that all art is autobiography in a way. And that we take the things we know best and try to transform them. But in the in the end, they sort of belong to us mm-hmm. in some version or another. Mm-hmm. Oh, for wow. better or worse, wow. maybe. So tell me, what does future tense of joy look like for you today? Um, kind of being here and talking to you <laughs> and laughing and feeling safe. Mm-hmm. And um, going home and having a brownie mm. and hugging my daughters and um, and, you know, reminding my husband of this moment that you read about that was so beautiful, the discovery of those vows. Mm -hmm. I really feel this present tense moment for me is unbelievably Mm -hmm. joyful. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost kind of 
self-conscious about saying that because I, I do think we grow up thinking that if you're cynical, you must be smarter. You know what I mean? Yeah. To be pessimistic is to be realistic, right. I guess. Right. And now I don't feel that anymore. I mm. feel like there's just a lot of loveliness in the world, even in challenging times like mm-hmm. this week. Yeah. I feel like we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. You have to believe that, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you don't, then the heaviness, right? That's going back to the heaviness of not believing that you can overcome something if you right. just tend to be drawn to the negative of it. Yeah. I once was in a bookstore with my older daughter and there was a bookmark that said, you're bigger than anything that can happen to you. Mm. And I really believe that's true. And I believe that's true for our country too, mm-hmm. that all the things that we value are yeah. still there and we just have to nurture them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely lost and we are going through yeah. a tough time and challenge right now. Um, so where can viewers find you? Where can they find the book? Uh, the book is in all of your wonderful independent bookstores. It's on Amazon. It's You can get it through Barnes & Noble online. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a website where my future events are posted, mm-hmm. uh, which is www.byjessicateich.com. Mm-hmm. So please join me there. And I'm hoping that that's going to expand, Paula, and become a real kind of salon-like setting where people can come and talk about their own experiences oh, wow. and work on projects. Um, it's not just going to be about the book. The book was really the starting point for okay. that. Okay, that's great. That's great. And do we have? Uh, do you have social media, Twitter? Or- I do. I'm. Um, I'm at Jessica Teich. Something. I'm. <laughs> I'm. Forgive me. My daughters are going to cry. I sometimes bother my little daughter by saying I'm going on the line because it just drives her nuts. <laughs> on the um, line. I so, love yeah, that. I've never heard that before. She's going to wince when she hears me say that. But um, I. Sh- I should know my Twitter account better than I do I'm so sorry but I this is this is a moment when I really have to get up to speed because I think it's really important so I will so much on social media right yeah you start with Twitter and then next thing you know you're on Instagram and then you're on Facebook and then they say well do you Snapchat and yeah it just never stops just never stops I just recently learned that a text and an email were not the same thing (laughs) and I'm thinking I must be 200 years old so forgive me listeners (laughs) but I I am going to get up to speed I promise awesome that is awesome well thank you thank you thank you so much what a great pleasure I love the book I thought it was very powerful. It was very eye-opening. I loved um, the way these relationships became interwoven and the the strength of you pushing forward and finding out not only for yourself, but also being willing to push forward for Lacey. I think that speaks volumes about who you are as a person. I, I I'm that. so great. You're a wonderful yeah. reader. I'm so glad we didn't lose yeah. you to the corporate world. I <laughs> don't deserve you. <laughs> And Thank happy you. birthday to your mom. What's your mom's name? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I'm going to give her Please. a fake name. Okay, okay. Mom. 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 We'll Thank give her you. mom. This is wonderful. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, we'll be back next week with another great book. This is Paula Bryan Ellis for uh, Book Circle Online. You can reach me on Instagram and Twitter, P. Bryant Ellis. Thank you. Have a great day. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.